It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, January 7th, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The head of Iowa's Republican Party predicts smooth sailing for next week's caucuses, but predicts high turnout driven by new caucus goers and possibly new fears. I've seen the immigration issue and the border issue absolutely skyrocket like I've never seen and I've been chair for 10 years. I'm Jared Halper. The U.S. set a new record for oil production in 2023. What does it mean for the energy debates in the country? This is a really, really unstable time. And I really think that if it weren't for the magnitude of U.S. energy production, that the markets around the world would be a lot less stable. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Republican presidential candidates in the home stretch are focused heavily on Iowa voters a little more than a week away from the caucus, the first presidential nominating contest in the country. One man sits on top of the polls, but former President Trump is asking supporters not to take his advantage for granted. You have to do me if I just go out and vote. You know, terrible things have happened. Oh, he's got it made. Well, wait till November. No, you got to get out caucus, get out and vote because we have to big uh, we have to put big numbers up, really big numbers. Sometimes, you know, you're leading by so much, they say, oh, I think let's sit home and watch a movie and we'll watch the results afterwards. And we don't want to do that. You got to get out and vote. And rather than focusing too much on him, the two candidates who appear to be duking it out for second place are focused more on each other. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. Literally, there is not one commercial that fella has put on TV that has been truthful. Not one about me. Nikki Haley is running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues. Iowa isn't the best predictor of who goes on to be president, but its supporters tell you they help winnow down the field and that Iowa is an accessible place for those who want to run without a ton of resources. But it's also had issue after issue with reporting out timely, accurate results, and that's led to some frustration on election night, as caucuses, unlike primaries, are run by the state's political parties rather than the government. There may be some some party business uh, may be conducted first. It's totally up to the individual uh, precinct chair, how uh, the order of that, the vast majority will go in that order. And then some will have a ballot and some will actually have uh, the voters actually write down the name. Uh, But generally, how you described is how the typical caucus will go. Now, if you get a ballot... Um, if, if you just write down a name, I assume that's just on a piece of paper and you just count up the names. That is correct. And the names are uh, the votes are counted in the room where the ballots are cast and they are actually reported in the room. So it is as transparent of a process as you could ever expect any place. Now, if you get a more formal ballot, does that go through like a tabulation machine or what? Hand counted in the room and uh, each campaign, if it so chooses, can have an observer in addition to all of that. So no, no machinery then here? No. The wow. only, there is, a, there is an app for reporting 
uh, but that app for reporting is just the totals of the vote. And, uh, and, and we also, in front of the entire room, we actually put those results that are going through the app. Those results are also put on a, on a reporting uh, sheet called the Schedule E, and they are actually kept so we have a paper trail of what is reported on the app. So it, it's, a, it's a very redundant, very transparent system that we have. Okay, now wait a second. You just mentioned the word app. Four years ago, as you know, the Democrats had a pretty tough time with an app they used. It basically failed um, to, to get results in. And then while the app was failing, the precinct chairs were trying to call the results in to the party, and the, the lines were, were, were full, so they couldn't get through. Well, and at the same time, over on the, on the Republican side, Things went off perfectly in 2016. Things went off perfectly, and that was a record-setting year. The, the problem that the Democrats had is that app was chosen by the National Party and handed to the state party at the last minute. I actually think, and I'm not a conspiracy kind of guy, but I'll tell you, it smells an awful lot like the DNC uh, choosing Iowa to to set them up for failure. And I'll be honest with you, now that you see how they handled Iowa on the Democratic side, I think I'm probably correct. This app we have chosen, the RNC has nothing to do with it. And I will assure you that we have done this process multiple times and we've done it as close to perfection as you can get. So we feel yeah. very comfortable about that aspect. I was going to say, did you use the app four years ago? Are you that confident? Like it's been tested in an actual election? Oh, we, we've, uh, we have used, uh, well, we didn't, we certainly didn't use the app the DNC handed down. I wouldn't touch that with a 20 foot pole, but, the, but we have used, uh, we've used uh, 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 various apps through the years and we test these things. We are well over 200 trainings in right. Iowa in the last couple of months. We have five full-time staff out there that are training uh, uh, the precincts. We have 1,657 precincts uh, in 99 counties. They are out they are out there. We have had we have tested dry runs. We have tested every scenario. We have fail safes. I mean it's a it's a pretty amazing process actually. And then of course we have that paper trail uh, that we can uh, for the schedule E that uh, we can uh, we can use. In fact, our goal is always, and we met it in 2016 in a record-breaking year, during a blizzard, we were able to uh, double-check all the results within 48 hours. The Republicans have got this thing down to a science, and we, we are leaving no stone unturned. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let me clarify, because a lot of people who do know what a caucus is, and I've been in a caucus, you, you, you join, you, you know, you go to a you know, one side of the room, you stand with other people who uh, who support the same candidate as you. And then if, if your guy doesn't get or gal doesn't get 15 um, percent, then you you have to pick the, your next favorite candidate. You go stand in another part of the room with your with the other supporters of that person. That's not happening. Right. That realignment. This is just we're going to hear speeches. We might do some party business and then we're going to write our vote down on a piece of paper. And Jess, this is a very important point. That has never happened in the Republican caucus. Got it. The Republican caucus was always very simple. You take a vote, we report, the re we report the results. Another one of the criticisms of the Democratic caucuses in the past has been that rather convoluted process. 
Yeah. So we have never done that, nor would we ever do that because it complicates the process. And so the, what you just described is how we've been doing it since 1976. And, and, and as for delegates, um, how does that work? Because there, there's, what, 40 delegates out of Iowa that go to the convention, right? But, but a, a far larger number of delegates get apportioned, right, based on these results. And they go to, what, county or state conventions first? Well, yes and no. First of all, the, the the there's two processes that are going on that night. One is the presidential preference vote, and there is a delegate allocation there in terms of the national convention, and that's just a proportion, a percentage of how the candidates finished. If as well, if there is a contested, uh, if there is a contested uh, race at the national level. If it's the candidate, if the Republicans decide that it's one candidate, then uh, all of our uh, all of our delegates are cast for that for that uh, candidate. What you are talking about is the other part of the evening when we do our party business. That's usually second on the agenda. And there we have delegates actually go to a, a county convention, a district convention, a state convention, and they do things such as set up our governing board, which is our state central committee, who is actually going as delegates uh, to the national convention, which they are bound on the first ballot if it's contested. So who they supported is beside the point in that first ballot. Mm. And also that is how we begin our process of putting together the platform. But in terms of the presidential preference, it's also very, very straightforward in the, in the Republican uh, caucuses and always has been. It's a okay. So it's not split up then. It's not split up. So so if Donald Trump gets most of the vote, then all delegates in Iowa go to him. It, it, uh, it, well, if if he ends up being the unanimous nominee, but if, for example, it's uh, let's take 2016. So in in 2016. Uh, for in 2016, when there was still uh, th- there was still a contest mm-hmm. in that particular case, we were bound to our results. But that's because it was contested. That usually doesn't happen. As Got you it. know, the, it will probably by the time we get to July, we will have settled on a candidate long before that time. Got and it. if that's the case, all of Iowa's 40 delegates will go to Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or name your candidate. Now, in 2012, obviously, uh, I know that's quite a distance <laughs> from now, but that there sure. was a Republican issue, right? Because the vote was very close. And it was first, everybody thought it was Mitt Romney had won. And then it was, oh, no, wait a second, Rick, Rick Sam Torum maybe actually won. And then it was sort of sort of still left up in the air. No one really got to claim the momentum, I guess. I, I guess Mitt Romney did kind of. But in, in this case, is there... Is there a, a confidence, I guess, among you guys that this will go somewhat smoothly because Donald Trump is so far ahead in the polls? In other words, that there won't be some excruciatingly tight, um, you know, result here. Sure. And let me let me let me preface my answer to your question with stating in 2012, the problem wasn't in our process in 2012. The problem was that the election, the caucus results were called too soon. And as I said in 2016, which when I first became the chair, um, that was uh, that was something that was, you know, I, I was getting a lot of questions about that. But I said at that time, and I'll say to you too, Jess, 
is that is I will that that caucus these caucus results will not be called too soon. So okay. I wanted to make sure you understood what actually happened in 2012. That was that was an error on calling, not necessarily an error of an app or an error on the process. Now, in terms of this year, you know, it's there. There is uh, there are multiple tickets out of Iowa, so you know you could say, well, if it, if right now, if the if the election was uh, was uh, held today, if the caucus were held today, and if the polls are uh, you know are 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 a reality, then it looks like there would be a spread between first and second. But remember, there's there's also a great deal of interest in Iowa because our job is not to pick the next presidential nominee, although 43% of the time we do it. Our job is to give everybody a fair hearing and to winnow the field. And so people are interested in uh, second and third place. People are even interested if someone makes a move, uh, like if, uh, you know, if, if a bank would make a move or Ryan Binkley would make a move or Asa Hutchinson and end up maybe still in fourth place, but actually doing better. That's also seen as a potential. Well, Joe, Bi- so, Joe Biden came in fourth in Iowa, right? So I guess. <laughs> yeah, look how much good that did the Democrats, huh? Um, but no, the, I, I think that uh, I feel confident regardless of the results because we have this transparent process, because we have the paper trail for the schedule ease, and because, quite frankly, the buck stops with who you're talking to right now. That 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 uh, caucus, those caucus results will not be called until we have a great deal of uh, of, of um, confidence. And if that meant that I would have to hold off, that's exactly what I would do. Right now, it looks like that won't be an issue. But you know what? It's I never say never in these kind of contests. I was going to say, are you prepared for the possibility that fine Trump went maybe wins first place in Iowa, right? But the vote count is actually super close for for second place not Absolutely. first place and so it's it's Haley and DeSantis maybe demanding you know some sort of uh, uh, recount or reconsideration and, and here's the yes and here's the thing Jess in in four years or actually three years I was going to have to make its case again now unlike the Democrats who have their mm. DNC and their president again the Iowa Democrats who had the DNC and their president against them and they did really nothing to push back. Uh, the Republicans, it's a different story here. And so we we are going to we want to enter into those to those uh, requests on our part to remain first in the nation uh, to the RNC. Or if we have a Republican president, the Republican president will have a tremendous amount of input on that. We want to make sure we come in and say our results, not th- that we called the election correctly, but all of our results were transparent and valid election mm. integrity in our caucus is absolutely uh, paramount. And so we need to be confident across the board, regardless of what the spread is between first and second. Tell us a bit about Iowa, right? Because as we wait for the results to come in that night, um, you're going to have the people on the cable channels and and in other places looking at the map, looking at all the counties. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that, because the Northwest seems to have gone, the Northwest of, of Iowa seems to have gone for Trump, right, in 2020 by wide margins. But then you've got, you know, your you're at least a few swing counties, Dubuque, Dallas, and Jefferson. And we know this isn't the general election, but where might we be looking to see more varied results? Like, are the Haley and DeSantis supporters more likely in specific places across Iowa? That's an excellent question. And, and you know, the honest to goodness answer is that's part of what the analysis will be. And that's part of the fun of, of analyzing what happened. I don't think anybody 
has a handle, except for maybe the campaigns in terms of how many people they have committed to them. And even then, you have to be careful because, you know, it's it's a it, it, this ballot is just like any other any other ballot. I mean, it's private and confidential and, and you, you never know for sure. Uh, what people are going to do in the confidence of of uh, of not sharing how they voted uh, what i would say what what i would say about iowa is the the rural areas the rural areas um after 2016 and 2020 it was solidified have truly became republican i would argue they've come home again and that not only includes that not only includes northwest iowa which has always been our most republican part of our district but that also includes the big changes that we've seen in the last two caucus cycles and election cycles along the Missouri River, along the Mississippi River. And quite frankly, there used to be a lot of rural Democrats uh, in that uh, in that line of counties along the Missouri uh, border. All of those have moved into the category. Now, does that mean since they moved into uh, deep red because of Donald Trump, does that mean that's who they're going to support yeah. the caucus? I think Donald Trump would tell you that. On the other hand, I think that that our other candidates are going to say, no, they're going to be open. And, I, you know, I, I think they have to give Donald Trump credit for for turning uh, for turning those counties red. But, you know, it remains to be seen, uh, you know, the, the if that holds, um, you know, and it, and it all depends on on the results. If you look at the if you look at the polls right now, it looks like they might. We are fighting tooth and nail and, and plan to in the general election we will be fighting in the suburb in the suburbs i think that will be interesting now that we are competitive and we're even competitive uh just now we're in competitive in some of our urban areas we're competitive in the quad cities davenport and Bettendorf, for example we are more competitive in sioux city for example and so we've got we, we've got some areas now that remain to be analyzed because this is new territory we seem to be getting redder and redder and that doesn't mean we rest on our laurels because that's the quickest way possible to go back to purple again. Uh, and, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think it remains to to be seen exactly how this plays out among uh, among these uh, four or five candidates that are uh, are viable. I would say we probably have four candidates that are viable. And yeah. and remember, we also have uh, Ryan Binkley and Asa Hutchinson. I'll, I'll tell you, I've talked to both their campaigns this week. Uh, are they going to win? I doubt it. But they are fighting hard. And of course, that's good for the Iowa caucuses because that's what we're supposed to. That's what we're supposed to sponsor. That's what we're supposed to foster here. And that is everyone has a shot of making their case in our first in the nation state. Briefly about Iowa's role, you just referenced it earlier in the interview, but we see most of the candidates, Iowans back on both sides of the political aisle, do not go on to be president. Um you you gave an interesting percentage, though, at least uh, for the Republican side. But talk to me about that, because when you talk to uh, officials or elected representatives in Iowa, they say, yeah, but we w- we help winnow the field. And to your p- point just now, Iowa is a place where you can actually run. Um, it's not a California or New York or Texas where you've got to pay like, you know, millions of dollars to be in a media market. But it, it isn't the greatest predictor, is it? No, I, and it, it's on the Republican side, it's 43% of the time. Um, and, and it is not, and just, I would argue strongly that that, that is our strength. Because, it, and, and not only is the, are the Iowa caucuses, are, are the Iowa caucuses supposed to win on the field? You know, in some caucus states, 
the candidates actually have to pay a pretty hefty fee mm-hmm. uh, to be to to actually be considered. In Iowa, there is nothing, and so we truly are open. And here's what I would argue: I, I, I you know, we yeah, Iowa's first in the nation. But what we have in the Republican Party, and they used to have in the Democratic Party, and hopefully, if they somebody gets something called common sense, they'll go back to that again. But but the mm-hmm. but we are a car. We have a carve out system. So it's not just Iowa, but it's Iowa, it's New Hampshire, it's South Carolina and Nevada. They sometimes switch the order that they go in. Two caucus states and two primary states. Uh, the caucus states are an organizational feat. Uh, I don't the, the state, the, the taxpayers of Iowa don't pay a dime in, in, in New Hampshire. I could I, I could be on a beach right now if I were the New Hampshire chair because the taxpayers <laughs> pay for the for the primary and they don't have to worry about one thousand six hundred and fifty seven precincts and we're totally responsible and that's not a criticism it's just a fact but he, here's the thing Jess and you have to start someplace where everybody has a chance I always look people in the eye and say if you really want to look a fifth grade class and you tell that class and actually mean it not just metaphor not just happy talk that you can be president someday and actually mean it, you've got to start in a place like Iowa and you have to have a state like Iowa that isn't necessarily a predictor of who's going to win the whole thing, but is actually a fair arbiter of anybody that wants to throw their hat in the ring. Uh, sometimes the heavyweights, so to speak, the the, the the people you expect to win, do win. You know, think back to think back to George W. Bush, for example. On the other hand, we've had Rick Santorum win literally driving around in a pickup. And some people might say, well, that's not a predictor of anything. Well, it's not supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is give those fifth grade social studies teachers an absolute some modicum of of integrity and truthfulness when they look at their class and say, you can be president someday. If you want to say that, you must begin this process in Iowa. And I would argue it needs to be a caucus process where everybody can have it out, including that evening Mm. in those 1,600 plus precincts. Those sound like fighting words that it has to be a caucus. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm I'm a little biased. You could probably tell. Okay. Last, last thing for you, turnout. Um, It was, I guess the record was 180,000, right? In 2016 for the Republicans. Um, But there are, I was reading there are nearly 600,000 registered GOP voters in Iowa. Um, Are you hoping, what are you hoping for this time around, especially with Trump being so, I guess, dominant in the the polls? Sure. It's a little over 186,000. That was 2016. And I just want to add, just to kind of reinforce your very valid questions that you asked at the very beginning and things pulled off without a hitch uh, amidst all the drama back in 16. And I was the chair then. But, you you know, I, 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 it feels on the ground, the, the and these are this is anecdotal, obviously. Uh, it, it the passion, the enthusiasm, the amount of questions that we're getting at the party, it feels like it's in a, a 2016-like environment. Hmm. And and I, you know, I don't think you have to have the polls that are in a dead heat in order to generate interest. I I would argue in this particular case, the fear of Joe Biden is every bit as as important to a lot of people that are that are first time caucus growers and people that are coming back again as 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 any given issue or as much as uh, as as a horse race so to speak 
we've got a we we have a situation uh, here where where people I, I I believe people are genuinely afraid, uh, and, and I'm I'm not talking about genuinely can't stand progressive ideas or generally believe that Joe Biden is incompetent. I think when I, I think when and I, I've seen the immigration issue and the border issue absolutely skyrocket. Like I've never seen, and I've been chair for ten years. I'm the second longest chair of the 56 in the country. And so I've got, you know, I've got a little perspective. I've never seen an issue launched this rapidly in Iowa when we are this far from the uh, from the border. And so I think and, and, and I see that as fear. I see that as fear as reported in uh, on fair news uh, news networks. I, I see people genuinely afraid of the world. And I, I, I really think people are see this. And that's why I'm seeing another phenomenon that I did not see the first two uh, uh, caucus cycles. And that is the amount of people that saying they are going for the first time to a caucus. I have been now at two events. I'm neutral. So I attend an event for every single candidate. And I've been to two candidates events now where they had them raise their hand if they're a first time caucus goer. And these are people that took the time to come to an event. So I think it's a pretty good predictor. And uh, they're in one of those events, one third of the people that, that were in attendance were going for the very first time. There's something going on there beyond even excitement for a candidate. And, uh, and so we've got positive energy and negative energy. I, I got to tell you, I got to even even though Biden completely shunned and 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 expressed his middle finger at our state when he passed uh, when he passed the Democrats over for first in the nation. I got to tell you, Joe Biden is probably up for my MVP award if we break records and if we get redder. Wow. This there's so much analysis. Yes, I, yeah. I almost wish that uh, we could, uh, you know, postpone New Hampshire for another week so we could really reflect on this. But I know you're all going to forget about us when you get on the plane for Concord. Oh, we'll never forget about you guys. Iowa GOP it. Chairman Jeff Kaufman, thank you for joining. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The oil business is booming in the U.S. In 2023, more oil was produced in the U.S. than any country has ever produced in a single year, 13.2 million barrels of crude a day. It's one of the reasons why, despite sanctions on Russian energy and conflict in the Middle East, American drivers are paying about three bucks a gallon for gas. That is the lowest average price since May of 2021. I was surprised to see the level of oil production in the U.S. After all, President Biden is touting record investments in green energy in a transition away from fossil fuels. And Republicans frequently accuse the Biden administration of holding back U.S. energy production, especially oil and natural gas. So what's behind the record-setting production of U.S. oil? And will the trend continue through this year and help ease those prices at the pump? That's what I asked Dustin Meyer, a senior vice president of policy, economics and regulatory affairs at the American Petroleum Institute. 
It's such an interesting time, right? Because on one hand, uh, this achievement, this record uh, oil production here in the United States, you know, I think in many ways, the way that we view it in the industry is that this uh, has has happened, you know, despite some, some policy headwinds, you know, uh, from the U.S. government, not really because of any policy support there. It's really more the result of innovation from the industry. It's also the result of an incredible amount of investment. Um, um, from the industry in U.S. oil and gas assets. So that's really the driver of it. But you have to remember at the end of the day, this is a great thing in and of itself, right? That we, you know, have this level of, you know, energy dominance and producing at this level. It's good for the United States. It's good for consumers. It's good for our allies around the world. But what's the point of the production? Well, the point of the production of the supply is to meet the demand. And that, I think, is where the bigger disconnect is, is you hear so much talk out there that, oh, as we transition away from fossil fuels, you know, oil demand is peaked, it's already peaked, and it's going to plummet, it's going to fall very quickly. And nothing could be further from the truth if you look at the data. This year, we set a new record high for oil demand. Most forecasters, including the IEA, suspect that next year we'll set another new record demand. So that's the way that we really view this is that it's our obligation to meet that demand. The demand is going to be there. The question is, where should the supply come from? We believe it should come from the United States. Is that demand, the increased demand, a direct result of sort of coming out of the pandemic economy? It's it, so we're, we're past where we were pre-pandemic. You know, a lot of the records in terms of energy demand were from 2019 levels. We've really blown past that even last year. And this year, it's going even higher. So it's not so much of a coming out of the pandemic anymore. It's more just the resumption of the long established trend, you know, going back decades and decades, energy demand is increasing, not declining. Um, that's been uh, that's been the case for a while now. And that's the trajectory that we're back on now. What do you attribute that demand to? Well, I mean, the population is growing, economies are growing. You have a lot of folks, uh, not just in the developed world, but in the developing world, uh, they're traveling more. Uh, you know, road transportation is increasing, jet fuel demand is increasing, people are flying more often. It's just a reality of our society as we continue to grow our population. Uh, folks are requiring more energy, not less. And I think that those are trends that are uh, uh, most likely to continue. Is it's the U.S. production as well kind of a necessity? We've obviously seen uh, the Biden administration um, have some disagreements with Saudi Arabia, with OPEC over their production levels. OPEC and Saudi Arabia have cut uh, production. I imagine that one of the reasons that is not translated to higher gas prices is because of the U.S. production. I think that's exactly right. You know, gas prices are a lot lower this year than what they were last year. And you're right to point out that there are many major producers around the world who, instead of increasing production to meet this rising global demand, they're doing the opposite. They're actually pulling back. They're cutting production, not in the United States. The United States has led the world in production increases over the last couple of years. And really, it's not even close. And I think that that is playing a large role 
role in making sure that markets are more stable than what they otherwise would be, right? You look at the headlines right now, there is a lot of instability out, out, out there in the world. I mean, the Russia-Ukraine conflict remains a major driver of geopolitical instability, but now you have, of course, the conflict in Gaza, the Red Sea situation. This is a really, really unstable time, and I really think that if it weren't for the magnitude of U.S. energy production, that the markets around the world would be a lot less stable than what they are what they are right now. It, it is because of U.S. oil uh, and gas production being at the levels that they are that we're able to keep uh, the prices kind of in the in the uh, range that they're in. Are those gas prices going to continue that downward trajectory through this year? Well, I, I, who's to say, you know, and we never make projections here at API, um, but I do think that, that it is important to remember what the drivers are of falling energy costs. And that has a big role to play in uh, reducing inflation as well. And it's hard when you look across the landscape of all of the different parts of the uh, equation in terms of how energy prices are established and what markets are doing. It's hard to escape the conclusion that one of, if not the largest, largest driver is the increase in U.S. oil and gas production. We started this conversation kind of talking about the Biden administration. It's, it's very public energy policies and kind of the juxtaposition here of record setting production. Is that to say that a lot of the, the policies, while you say they don't necessarily contribute to the oil production, they're not really hindering it, it would imagine either. Well, you have to understand the way that oil and gas production in the United States is really split. You know, the bulk of it takes place on private land. And when you're talking about production on private land, that's really more of a state level concern and less of the federal government. We've increased production about 1.6 million barrels per day since the beginning of the Biden administration. About a million barrels per day of that increase has been on private lands, right? So that's not really something that the federal government can really put their thumb on the scales one way or the other. Now, in terms of production on federal lands and waters, again, that's about five or 600,000 barrels per day. That's a good thing. The federal government does have a larger role to play there. However, when you look at those assets, those gains in production that we've seen are almost entirely the result of previous administrations, right? Because those are longer lead time investments. And that's a big emphasis that we have for the administration, for other folks who are paying attention, is that that you have to make sure that your energy policy today reflects the realities of the energy worlds of tomorrow. And that's where we have a lot of concerns with the administration's view on the future of energy, is we think that a lot of their policies are misguided and potentially set up a situation for energy crises in the future. I do you know, view this kind of through the lens of politics. Obviously, it's an election year now, everything in Washington. Yes, it is. At least through a lens of politics. So I mean, would you expect major changes to, to energy policy if it would risk in an election year gas prices going up? You know, I don't really know. Obviously, it is going to be a dynamic year, and we think that energy and energy policy very much is on the ballot, and there is a bit of a dif difference between the parties right now in terms of how they talk about energy and the future of energy. And I think, you know, what we really want from policymakers from both parties and candidates from both parties is to really have an appreciation and an understanding, I guess I should say, of the outsized role of U.S. oil and gas in 
the future of energy, right? This is such a strong asset for our country to have. It's great for consumers. It's great for our allies. It's great for us as we, you know, negotiate these very difficult dynamics around the world. This is a really good thing. We need more of it and we need policies to support it. So we hope that as this campaign season unfolds, uh, candidates from both parties uh, really recognize that. As we look at the oil production in this country, how much of that is sort of refined and used here in the United States versus exported around the world? You know, so we are, this gets a little confusing, but we are a net exporter of energy. We're the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Um, and we're a net exporter of a lot of the components of the oil barrel, right? So that is a good thing, but still it remains that the bulk of U.S. oil and gas produced here in the United States is used here in the United States. Let me uh, finish with this, and that is as we kind of look now to 2024, 2023 sets this record for, for oil production. Is that sustainable? Do you think 2024 sets a new record? I think, again, you know, we wouldn't make a prediction about that, but that is what the EIA would forecast. That's what the IEA is forecasting. That's what a lot of folks out there are suggesting is that there are going to be uh, uh, further gains in U.S. oil production. I should add, just as an aside, we've been talking almost exclusively about oil, but a lot of the same trends are very much in place on the natural gas space. Um, and in many ways, the geopolitics of natural gas these days are almost more salient than the geopolitics of oil oil, though those are pretty important. As yeah, I mean, I remember talking a lot about, you know, sort of can we send this natural gas to to Europe in the face of, of the Russia sanctions, right? That was a big part of, of kind of the energy uh, concerns, at least in the immediate aftermath of the war. Yeah, that's exa that's exactly right, right? And we are by far the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. And so we've done this, right? We've increased our exports of this very valuable commodity. And there were a lot of folks, well, isn't that going to increase you know, prices here in the United States? Well, what we saw this year, natural gas prices in the U.S. fell 62% this year versus last year. So it's a reminder that we really can do both of these things quite well. And it's because of the investment from the industry in the producing assets here in the United States. So it's really quite a remarkable story on the gas side. It's a fascinating trend. And as you know, we said, there, there's always a little bit of politics involved. But I think it's important to take a step back and look at sort of how much uh, an administration uh, is to be credited or blamed for, to you, your credit, a, a very volatile market, right? Very volatile market. Yeah. But the, the you know, the transition, the transformation, we were looking uh, at some uh, charts just earlier today, actually. And you look back just to 2008, you know, that wasn't th that long ago, I guess. Right. But that was notable because, oh, you remember at that time, things were getting a little unstable and oil prices re reached their record high, right? $147 per barrel. Um, we all remember that in terms of what it meant at the pump. At that time, the United States was producing 5.1 million barrels per day of oil. Today, we're doing 13.3 million barrels per day of oil. That is a massive sea change and a shift. And that's a big reason, in most people's opinions, why markets, despite all of the geopolitical instability that you see in the world, almost an unprecedented level, of geopolitical instability, at least for the last 30 or 40 years, even with that, oil markets, gas markets are at least a little more stable than what I think they otherwise would be. Does that U.S. production figure put pressure on OPEC to, to pump up the numbers? 
I think it definitely does give the United States a lot more leverage when we negotiate with our allies and trading partners around the world. And it is definitely something that OPEC and other producers have to consider. And I think one of the things that we often think about here that it doesn't seem like too many folks think about as often, but if you rewind over these last two years and replay the counterfactual, what could have happened if instead of the United States being the world's largest oil producer and being the world's largest natural gas producer and being the world's largest LNG exporter. If instead we were still stuck in that 2008 era where we were producing only 5 million barrels per day of oil and only 50 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas instead of 100 billion cubic feet per day, what what would have happened? You know, I mean, that's a really different outcome. Instead of sending so much of our liquefied natural gas over to Europe, we would have been out competing with our European allies for the cargoes that were out there on the market. Think of the leverage that Russia would have. Think of the leverage that OPEC would have if it weren't for this increase in U.S. production. So that's a really interesting perspective through which to view the current geopolitical situation. Absolutely. At this critical time in this uh, uncertain time, Dustin, really appreciate your insight and your analysis here on, on an issue that, uh, listen, I think uh, maybe from the macro level is, doesn't always get a lot of attention, but boy, people uh, worry a lot about those gas prices and, and there's no bigger indication of what they're paying now than, than the amount of production happening around the world. So Dustin, I appreciate your, uh, your insights here. Enjoyed the conversation. Hope we get a, a chance to do it again. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, the final weekend before voting begins, we will spend a lot of time talking Iowa as Republican presidential hopefuls make last minute pitches to convince caucus goers to support them. Also, Congress returns from its lengthy holiday break with very little time to prevent a government shutdown. We'll recap any progress. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.